Today, the biography that we're looking at was written by a man named Mark. Now, I want you to see how he starts his gospel. Go ahead and pull up that first line. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. First line of the book that he writes. Now, I think this is interesting because a lot of times when we hear about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we hear about the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Luke, the gospel of John, and that makes it sound holy and almost highfalutin. (laughs) But that word gospel just means good news, and none of them actually label it with their own name. They all call it the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the good news about this person, Jesus, that they knew personally. Now, that's important because when you look at the Bible, as Chad explained to us last week, it is not like one person or one group of people sat down and said, we need a religious text for this new religion. Let's write a book. Let's call it the Bible. We could use this. It's actually 66 different books spread across thousands of years from dozens of different authors. And as they pulled that together, as they recognized that it was the story that God was revealing throughout history, four of them... Four of those books are just about the life of Jesus. Saying this is such good news. We've seen it in the flesh. We have got to tell people. And so it begs the question for us, are they historically accurate? Are they reliable? Was Jesus a real person? If he is, is this what we really know about him? Because then it is really good news. And so we want to look for both internal evidence, right, within the text itself, that it matches, that it's true. Also external evidence. We look for things like archaeology to confirm the Bible. Because if these accounts are true, they have eternal consequences. And in fact, the biographies written about Jesus, the way that they were both written and preserved, in terms of historical technique, they both meet and exceed every other historical document that we have. To the point that uh, even, even skeptics and even atheists like Bart Ehrman recognize that we have to take this as historical evidence. Th- this is what Bart actually says. This is a guy who is an atheist, but he says that virtually all historians and scholars have concluded Jesus did exist as a historical figure. He certainly existed as virtually every competent scholar of antiquity, Christian or non-Christian agrees. To dismiss the Gospels from the historical record is neither fair nor scholarly. You see, the point that he's trying to make is made by by many historians that even if you don't agree with it, you can't pretend they just made it up. Even if you don't agree with it, you can't argue that these documents really came from that first generation after the life of Christ by people who really knew him and really believed that they were recording actual events. In fact, there's another historian who pointed out that even in the earliest days of Christianity, after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, that one of the easiest things would just be for their opponents to say, well, Jesus never actually existed. Right? So forget the whole thing. Right? Like if somebody came to you and said, hey, this is going to sound a little bit strange, but I met God, and he looked like a Jewish guy, And he did some miracles, and you need to believe in him or you're going to hell. Just trust me on this one. Just trust me on this one. If that guy didn't exist, the easiest thing in the world would just be to like, yeah, that that guy never existed. But what you find is that in the earliest days of Christ followers, the opponents of Christianity never claimed that Jesus didn't exist. 
Multiple historians have pointed this out because you would think if he, if he didn't exist, then we'd stop talking about him. But even their opponents never argued that he didn't exist. It's kind of like um, earlier this week, I was walking down the hallway and I overheard one of my coworkers. I, I have no idea what part of the conversation I missed. <laughs> but one of my coworkers uh, announced that he was going to fly away with this umbrella like Mary Poppins. All right? And one of my other coworkers kindly says to him, Mary Poppins isn't real. Right? Like, if Jesus isn't real, he's just another Mary Poppins who does magical things that, of course, people can't actually do. But if there is a historical Jesus, if this man really lived, if what he said is really recorded as historical fact, then it puts all of this in an entirely new light. And so then we ask ourselves, well, how did we get these Gospels? How did we end up with the four that we have? And there are a number of different things that went into deciding, like, what actually got collected into these 66 books. But I just want to hit on three of them specifically this morning. First of all, it had to be written by or associated with an apostle. Someone who was an actual eyewitness. So that word apostle, sometimes we hear them called the disciples. These would be the 12 guys who knew Jesus the best and were with him like every moment of his ministry. The only one that's not counted there would be Judas Iscariot for somewhat obvious reasons of betrayal. (laughs) And Paul gets added in because of his own experience. So it had to be written by one of those guys or someone who had direct access to them. As in like, you tell me, I'll write down what you're saying. Second, it had to be universally recognized by Jesus' followers. Now this is a big one. Because I don't know about you, but when I was first kind of looking into these things, it is easy for us to think, man, these people lived 2,000 years ago. I mean, they probably believed all kinds of weird stuff, right? Like people back then, I mean, you know how it is. But today, we are high tech, we are intelligent, it is the information age, and we know better. But actually, what, what you find when you go back into history, that the earliest Christ followers pushed really hard against including anything as historical and biblical truth unless it could be proven. And the reasons for that make sense because at the time that Jesus lived and in the earliest days of his followers, the empire of Rome was extremely anti-Christian. So people were being killed for believing that Jesus was what the Gospels claimed that he was. What that means is that the people who were following him, if they were going to accept something by Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, what they're saying is, I am willing to leave behind my wife and children if they drag me in front of those lions. If they tie me up and light me like a torch on the streets of Rome, I'm willing to die if it's true. Which is why a lot of things got left out. You know, as Chad explained last week, if they show up 200, 300 years later and and claim to be written by one of Jesus' friends who'd been dead for 200 years, hey, I don't care what else is in there. If you lie on the first page, I don't need that one in my Bible. The ones that get included are because people looked at it and they said, yes, I was there. That is what happened. Yes, I was there. I heard him say that. You willing to die for that? I'm willing to die for that. Which kind of puts it in a different perspective because for me, I can just download an app on my phone and read the Bible and then I decide if I think this is accurate or not. But for them, it was a matter of life and death, what was going to be included in this nice leather-bound book that we carry around. The third one that you see there, if you can click back one slide, the third one is that it had to be in agreement with what was already written. 
Right? So if there were things that we already believed had come from God, had were, you know, belonged in the Bible, if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all writing biographies, then if one of them says that Jesus lived in Israel and one of them says that he was from Nebraska, this doesn't work. Something, something isn't right here. So it would have to match. I mean, that just makes sense. Now, I want to come back to this first one a little bit because the gospel I told you that we're looking at today is by a man named Mark. And Mark was not one of the apostles, but he was associated with the apostle Peter. In fact, it's actually one of um, the apostle John who wrote one of the other biographies. One of his students was the first to tell us that we think that Mark got his information from Peter. And there's a couple ways that that actually shows up right in the book of Mark. One of them is we get a lot of detail about Peter and what Peter was thinking that we don't get in the other biographies. And it's usually not very flattering. <laughs> Almost like Peter is admitting some years later, yes, I was the one who said that. Yes, you, you know what, you can write that down. <laughs> I've learned my lesson, go ahead, write that down. So we get a lot about Peter and Peter's perspective that we don't get in the other biographies. In addition to that, there's something fun just about the way that Mark writes it that makes it feel like he's really writing down a story that someone's telling about the day they were there. Because the language that Mark uses, he's constantly saying immediately. Like nothing happened like after a while. It's always immediately this happened and immediately Jesus did this and just then this happened and then immediately this. You'll see it even in the ones we look at today. He keeps saying immediately. The other thing that shows up is the way he uses his verbs because he keeps flipping back and forth between past tense and present tense in the original language, which at first can sound confusing until you realize we actually do tell stories like that a lot of the time. So even the one I just shared about my coworkers, if you notice, I said, I was walking down the hallway and then one of them says to him, Mary Poppins isn't real. And so you'll see a lot of that in the book of Mark, which is the way we tell stories that it's almost like, yeah, I came home from work late the other day and my wife says to me, why are you late? Right, you catch it, but you also understand it because it's like we've just stepped into the moment that I'm reliving where I really was as an eyewitness. I was there. And that's the way that Mark writes. So let's jump into the first of these two accounts. And this is right in chapter one of the book of Mark. So I'm jumping a little bit towards the end of the chapter because there's this moment that a leper comes to talk to Jesus. And if you aren't familiar with leprosy, it's a little bit difficult to pin down exactly what that disease was back then. But the quarantine was not five days. It was not 10 days. Leprosy was like a death sentence. You were quarantined away from everyone else who was not a leper for the rest of your life. It was that contagious. And now he's going to walk right up to Jesus. So check out what happens. This is Mark chapter 1. I'm looking at verse 40. Now a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying to him, Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus, moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing. Be cleansed. As soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And we have to pick up on how shocking this moment is because not only is Jesus talking to him, Jesus touches the most contagious man in the entire community. 
Now, everything we know about people is that this should make Jesus sick. <laughs> but instead, Mark, through Peter, writes that it actually healed the other man. And the word that we are searching for here is the word compassion. Compassion. This is a word, believe it or not, that has only ever been said about Jesus. Now, doubt that because, oh, hold on a minute. I've heard the word compassion before. Well, that is our English translation of a Greek word uh, that you see sort of spelled out here at the bottom. Splanknistheis. We, we won't say it together, but splanknistheis. <laughs> okay, so, so here's what's happening in this moment. The writers of these four biographies about Jesus, these are the only place this word shows up in classical Greek. It doesn't show up in any other ancient Greek sources or poets or myths or anything else, only in these four biographies and only about Jesus. Well, so what is so special about this word? Well, actually, it's because it wasn't a word until they made it up. Like they went on a word search to try to explain just how deeply Jesus was feeling this moment, just how compassionate he really is, and they couldn't find one. Every other one fell short of Jesus because we know people are nice and we know people who feel bad for you and we know people who want to help, but Jesus, it's like, it's like, um, it's like splanknistheis. <laughs> yeah, dude, that sounds like you made it up, <laughs> right? But the word, that, that first piece of it, splank, is actually the Greek for your gut. It's like this is a gut feeling from the depth of that place where you feel the strongest emotion. Man, it's in your splunk. <laughs> and so they take this word and they coin it to try to explain Jesus. Now we're actually pretty familiar with this kind of thing in English. And I won't read you this whole thing, but this is my complete works of Shakespeare. Would you like me to read you the whole thing? And I tell you what, there, depending who you ask, thousands but at least 420 words that Shakespeare invented in the English language. And some of them are surprising. Excitement. He made that up. That was not in the English language for like the first thousand years of the language. We only got that a few hundred years ago from Shakespeare. And a lot of them, he was combining a couple different things, like lackluster. Right? If luster is something that is shiny or beautiful, and this thing does not have luster, it lacks luster. Let's just make that one word. I can start using that as an adjective. It's lackluster. So if you've ever had a lackluster performance at work, you can blame Shakespeare. But it's helpful to know these things because they're trying to get at what is this intense emotion that Jesus is feeling. And so they basically do the same thing. It's like taking that word for the gut, that word for emotion, and combining these things to try to express how deeply Jesus feels this. Because what Mark wants us to find is compassion like you have never seen before. He wants you to know that this goes beyond how much your spouse has ever loved you. This goes beyond the moments when your mom would do anything for you. It goes beyond the greatest mentor, the greatest friend, the greatest father or parent you've ever known. I'm talking about it's like splanknistheis. <laughs> that when Jesus sees this man hurting, when Jesus sees us sick or in pain or struggling, Jesus feels like he got gut-punched. It's gut-wrenching 
to Jesus when he sees us hurt. That when the leper walked up to Jesus, Jesus felt it. And he had compassion. That's what Mark wants us to understand about who the historical Jesus is. And you see how this goes, like, it's, it's beyond the, do we have artifacts that prove it? Yeah, we do, and let me tell you what he was like. Let me tell you why you want to know this Jesus. It reminded me of a few years ago, I was having lunch with a friend of mine named Rick. And Rick uh, also was a very emotional guy. <laughs> and we'd had a, a, a couple of moments where it, it wasn't between us, but I was there as a witness that, let's just say, um, anger got out of control to the level that it was, it was like about to be dangerous. And there was one of these times where a little while later he said, look, can we, just, can we just get together and talk? And he remembered that I had talked to him about overcoming some anger issues in my own life. And he said, okay, so I want the tips. Like, what did you do? I hear, I hear you're supposed to like count backwards from 10. Is that the thing? I was like, well, um, I probably need to count backwards from like 1,000. But it, it helps a little bit, you know, to slow down. But I thought, you know, I got to be honest with you. Like, the thing that helped me the most was talking to a God who understands my emotion. A God who offers to help me with self-control, to help me to process, who knows when I've been wronged, who feels it like I feel it. And, and he listened, you know, we had a good conversation, but the thing that really kind of changed it for him was he went home and he started reading the Bible. And as, as he put it to me, uh, he'd never realized that there were parts of the Bible that were before Jesus' life. So the Old Testament is actually thousands of years of human history full of predictions about Jesus that actually came before his life. The biographies record his actual life, and then we have a bunch of letters and other books that actually come after Jesus' life. And so as he began to read this, as he began to read about Jesus, the thing that he found was like, hey, Jesus understands anger and how to handle it in a healthy way. I think I'll try talking to Jesus about this thing. See, I think we miss that sometimes because the Bible, it, let, let's admit it, it can be hard to get into. There are parts of this that are not written like biography. They're written like legal code. And so sometimes if you just, you know what, I, I'm going to try it. I'm just, I'm going to do it. And you flop open to a random page and you pick something and you're like, I have no, what is going on here? And it's honestly, in that sense, it's not that different from Shakespeare. Like if you pick up the complete works of Shakespeare and you pick a random page uh, deceitful Warwick, it was thy device by this alliance to make void my suit before thy coming Lewis was Henry's friend. Apply that to your lives and I will see you next week. <laughs> right? It can be a little hard to get into. And same thing, if, if you're struggling to understand it, then you probably read Shakespeare in a really dry way. But could you imagine what it would sound like to say, um, Romeo, Romeo, uh, wherefore art thou, Romeo? Feels like you're missing something there, right? It is the east and Juliet is the sun. Um, the end, I guess. Except then, like, you know, she kills herself or fakes it and he kills himself. Everyone dies at the end. You're like, this is supposed to be dramatic. But Shakespeare can be hard to understand too. So the Bible's a little bit like that. So it helps me to know that there's an emotional depth in here that they actually had to make up words to try to access. So that when I'm reading it, I want to slow down and try to think, man, how was Peter feeling as he saw Jesus do these things? You know, because then some of the most popular lines we hear from the Bible start to take on a little more meaning. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish 
but have eternal life. Whoa, God so loved. God wants an emotional connection with you. A depth that only he can offer. You see, it's real people in real places writing down what they experienced. And so the leper experienced that in the first event, but I want to show you a second event as well. And this one takes place in the real place of Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is actually still there today, but what you're seeing here is ancient Capernaum. It's situated right on the Sea of Galilee, and and the view is every bit as beautiful with the mountains across the sea. If you turn around, there's more behind you. And it was an incredible fishing village. And so you see some of the marketplace, some of the homes, there's a place of worship on the right. And then all of a sudden you get like this spaceship looking thing on the left. (laughs) So the spaceship is not from ancient Capernaum. In fact, that is actually built over top of one particular house. It's what they think was the house of Peter, the follower of Jesus. Peter, who is telling Mark these stories to be written down. The reason they think that is because it's bigger than most of the other homes. And Peter was a very successful fisherman, so he would have been able to afford this. But also, good guy Peter let his mother-in-law move in. Peter had to build a mother-in-law suite. We see that in the pages of this book. And so it was also big enough to house multiple families. They've also found on the walls in this home early symbols of Christian belief. And so they think that that is probably where Peter lived. That these were streets that Jesus actually walked and taught and met with people. And so the second event comes out of the second chapter of Mark. And I want to just read you a little bit of this. It says, And again he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Probably that house. Immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door, and he preached the word to them. And it seems to be it's because the leper went and told anybody he could find, guys, Jesus heals leprosy. So now everybody with any little stub toe is like, I got to get this Jesus guy. What else does he heal? So they are packing it in. It is standing room only. They're spilling out of the house trying to hear what Jesus says, trying to see what he's going to do. It says, then they came to him bringing a paralytic who is carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. Literally because the roofs were flat, you could kind of hang out on the roof like a deck. So these guys dug a hole in the roof to lower their friend down to Jesus. Now imagine you're Peter. (laughs) Hey, next time, let's do this at Mark's house, (laughs) right? (laughs) And when they could not come near him, they... they, uh, So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which their paralyzed friend was lying... And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Which is obviously not why we're here. Right? Like, can you imagine? Like, you can't get in, but you know that he heals, and you have a friend who's been paralyzed. Well, maybe Jesus could heal him. To the point that you're like, I don't know whose house this is, but we're making a hole, right? They lower him down right in front of Jesus. This is the moment. Forget the crowd. We got our friend to the one they're calling the God-man. They say he's the Savior. They get him right in front of Jesus, clearly paralyzed on his mat, and Jesus says, you're forgiven. Thank you. Thank you. But that is not why I'm here. But here's what I love about this moment because it is the second word that we are looking for. 
Not only does Jesus show compassion, but he offers forgiveness. And it would be every bit as shocking as what we're feeling right now, that of all the things he could have said, he said, your sins are forgiven. In fact, the people standing around him were also shocked. And this is, this is kind of fun. It says some of the scribes, so these were religious people, but who were skeptical about who Jesus was claiming to be. It says they were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're right. Because the Bible teaches that ultimately our sin, right? Everything that you and I have done wrong, past, present, and future, it does hurt other people, but because it is God who creates the ultimate standard, our sin is ultimately against God, right? That's what separates us from him. That's why it says it has to be dealt with. It has to be punished. So they know nobody can actually forgive sin except God, and Jesus just claims to have forgiven sin. You see, what they're sensing is, is this guy saying what I think he's saying? Does he think that he can come in here and act like God? And then here we go. This, this, this is how Mark loves to speak. But immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, so basically, and when Jesus read their minds, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, arise, take up your bed, and walk. Basically, he knows that they want evidence. Right? Because anybody can say your sins are forgiven. Prove it. Show me. How would you know? So Jesus is, is owning that. Hey, what do you think is easier? If I say your sins are forgiven or if I heal him right before your eyes? Now, I want to pause there for a second. Because for us, 2,000 years removed from these historical events, I think there are moments in which we look at this and say, well, if it has something miraculous in it, I can't believe that. I mean, we are a people of science, we're a people of logic, right? That's some of what we went through in our Down to a Science series a few weeks ago. But now think about it the other way. Imagine it was happening, like, let's say this was Peter's house, and we're all crammed in here, and then a guy shows up and says, I am God, and I am here to forgive sins. Dude, if you are God, then prove it. You would demand something miraculous, right? I mean, that's part of what convinced people about who Jesus was. When he died, big deal. I can do that. You can do that. That doesn't make me a Messiah. The thing that changed was when he rose again. If he's really God, you would expect him to do the miraculous. So look what happens next. Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, so that you know I really can do that. He said to the paralyzed man, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that they all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. I love this moment because you realize these people aren't stupid. Skeptical doesn't have to mean bad guy. It means, hey, I got legitimate questions if you really think you're going to tell us you're God. I'd like to see some proof, please. And that they own it. We've never seen anything like that before. Is it possible that he really is who these historical documents claim him to be? 
Because hidden in the midst of that evidence, did you realize this? The man's biggest need was not healing. Although Jesus gave it to him, the first thing Jesus wanted to deal with was his forgiveness. That's why on this word search, what Mark wants us to find is the forgiveness you never knew you needed. He didn't know what he needed. It wasn't why he was there. But Jesus actually gave him the greater gift that day. Because if these things have eternal consequences, then if he heals the man's paralysis, he's got, what, another 40 years then when he can walk instead of be carried. But then what when he dies? Healing the leper, short term. Healing paralysis, short term. But forgiveness is forever. And that this man is, is just like us. We tend to focus on other needs. We tend to focus on our health, you know, our security, our, our safety, our pleasure, our happiness, our comfort. And in all of these, I mean, those are, I just listed, those are all good things. And, and don't think for a second, like, Jesus doesn't care. Because that's what we've just seen. Splagnistes, word of the week. In, increase your word power, Right? Jesus feels gut-punched when he sees you hurting. But one of the things I may not be paying attention to is that I don't just need healing or comfort or more happiness. I actually need a forgiver. I need someone who can save me from all of the mistakes that I've ever made. And the only one who can do that is the word. And so he offers us the better gift, not just to find health or happiness, but to be forgiven. And so I want to share with you the story of my friend Joe, because a couple of years ago, Joe got gut punched. And you'll hear him tell his own story, but as he went through that, you're actually going to see a video of his baptism which baptism is a symbol of being dunked under the water like Jesus was buried and raised out of the water like Jesus rose to life. That's why that becomes a symbol of saying, I'm going to follow Jesus now. I want him in charge of my life. And so this story actually came at Joe's baptism as he shared why, for all the gut punches that life had given him, he ended up putting his faith in Christ. And you'll notice at the end a very familiar story that he says comes out of the biography of Luke which is also recorded in Matthew and right here in Mark. So let's listen to Joe tell his story. So Joe, I know you've been thinking about this for a long time. And uh, as you've processed it, I wonder if you would just share with us a little bit why you're here getting baptized today. Okay. Um, I'm going to speak extemporaneously, which my family knows is always a risky proposition with me. Um, I think for me, the story in earnest uh, starts with a loss, uh, the loss of my late wife, Tracy, to breast cancer. Uh, that was in 2019. And I think prior to that, my story was one of being, I would call it an episodic or occasional Christian. I was raised uh, Catholic, um, didn't really, you know, went through communion, baptism, the, the, the rituals that go along with that. And in fairness, uh, nothing with Catholicism, nothing with anything other than I, I, it, it was me. I didn't embrace. I didn't reach and em embrace it. And 
I, th I think through that loss, uh, it changed something in me. And, you know, I, when I think of Horizon, it's in the mission statement to comfortably connect their people to Christ and God. And Drew conducted Tracy's service. And as that service was wrapping up, he let me know about a men's study that was going on. And some of those, some of those individuals from our Tuesday group are here. And I can't be thankful enough for what they did for me. I came in, I, I made a joke at a recent event that Drew was at, that I'm a Chicago Cubs fan. So what does that lead to? That leads to you being cynical and skeptical because of the Chicago Cubs. You know they're going to break your heart at some point. Um, that's the person who came to the first study of Luke, which is what we did uh, in early 2019. And the guys, including Drew, and it comes from Drew's leadership of that group, allowed me to be that person to ask the and Bill sitting here, and Bill and I would do it all the time. You mean to tell me this guy who committed these sins versus, you know, a Mother Teresa, they both they both get in? And, and being able to express that and not feel judged when you're doing that, I think that really is representative and an example of the mission statement of this church, and I can't be thankful enough for that. So, you know, as, as I said, this story starts with a loss, but... The only thing I give my credit, myself credit for in this is in our darkest days as a family, we, we made a choice to say, let's see what's in the book. Let's give it a chance. It's the first time in my life I ever did it. And, and the God's honest truth is if, if you come to a situation like that in my personal experience, it doesn't, it's not you anymore. It's God pulling you forward. And he's pulled me to this moment. I never thought I'd be doing anything like this, to be honest. Uh, but he pulls you forward, and that's, that's the blessing he's bestowed upon me. He's been there the entire time blessing me. I'm now making a choice to pay attention to the God moments and the blessings in my life. And people in this pool, the people in this church, my family have been instrumental in that. And I, I, I feel fantastic. I feel like the change has already happened, but I owe it to the people around me and the public in general to, to make this testimony that I, I fully believe that God is for us. Jesus came here. He took our sins upon himself. He went to the grave and he rose again. That's my fundamental belief. I'm by no means perfect. I'm going to sin again. I know that. But I also know, and it comes from Luke chapter 5, um, and we talked about this in, in group as well. It's a story about a group of friends who carry their paralyzed friends in to see Jesus they can't get into the house because it's so overflowing with people, so they lower them through the roof. And Jesus looks at that paralyzed man sitting there on a cot coming through the roof and realizes he has physical ailments, but looks at him, and the first words out of Jesus' mouth were, son, by the, uh, uh, man, by the faith of your friends, your sins are forgiven. And I can't tell you what that meant to me in terms of a healing moment and really a pointing of me towards eternity versus life on this earth, which is a great life, don't get me wrong, but when you start viewing things through an eternal lens, the, the, the salve it gives you, the, the peace it gives you is just so helpful. And with that, that's my story. I thank everyone for coming out. I really do. Joe, because of this testimony, we have three questions for you as an affirmation of your faith. Do you believe in God the Father, the maker of the heavens and the earth? Absolutely. Yeah. Joe, do you believe in Jesus Christ as your holy savior? Yes, I do. Joe, do you believe in the Holy Spirit, the giver of love and comfort? Absolutely. 
But because you've affirmed these things, we now baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You know, the other guys in the water with Joe were Tracy's dad and Tracy's brother, who've just been so instrumental in helping him get to know Jesus. And God has blessed Joe, and, and just a few weeks ago, uh, he got remarried to his beautiful wife, Sherry. It's just been amazing to see his journey. And, you know, your story may be different than his. Your story may be different than mine. It may be different than the person you're sitting next to right now or the person across the room from you. But the invitation is the same for all of us. Come to the word for compassion and forgiveness. And maybe as you hear this today, you want to consider for the first time what it would mean not just to ask God to make life a little easier, not just to take away some pain that you felt, but to say, I want to know Jesus as my Savior and I want to be forgiven. I'm going to pray in just a moment and you could use that moment just to tell him that simply. Jesus, I believe you are who you said you are. The Jesus of history and I trust you to forgive my sins. It's that simple to start this kind of a relationship with him. Maybe you've made that choice and you want to think about being baptized like Joe was. I always know that it looks a little bit strange because where else do we do something quite like that? But it's actually a pretty cool moment to celebrate with family and friends. And so if that's something interesting to you, we're celebrating another one on June 23rd. Uh, you can talk to one of us, Chad, myself, John Kirby, anytime about what that's like. But we're also having on August 6th an exploring baptism seminar that you could attend if that's something that you're interested in. You know, maybe you just want to jump into a group like Joe did. There are always groups of guys, groups of women digging into this word, asking big questions. Can I pray for you? Jesus, thank you for your splanknistheis. <laughs> thank you for your compassion for us. Thank you for your forgiveness. Lord, if there is anyone who is listening to this right now that wants to know that forgiveness for the first time and trust you as their Savior, I thank you that you hear their voice, you hear their heart. I thank you for the way that you understand our pains, for the way that you understand our hurts, for the way that you give us not only what we want, but, but Lord, ultimately you are trying to give us what we need more than anything else. And so for your compassion, for your forgiveness, we thank you and we do that in your name, Jesus. Amen. I want to thank you all for being here for Word Search this week. We have a couple more weeks of Word Search left, but we're going to take one week off next week to celebrate Father's Day together. So come back next week and we'll enjoy Father's Day and we'll see you then. Thanks for coming. Mm -hmm.